Hi, everyone, and thanks for coming back for part two of Solo, A Star Wars Story. As always, you don't have to watch the movie in order to listen to the episode, but we always recommend it as we will never stray away from spoilers. Last week was dedicated to a bit of a nerd fest on this movie, but it wouldn't be Cinematic Pulse if we didn't talk about what went into making the film itself. So let's get rolling. I'm your host, Audrey. And I'm your co-host, Cherie. So sit back, relax, and please don't silence your phone while we check your Cinematic Pulse. Okay, Cherie. Audrey. Last week, we talked about, uh, we did our first impressions uh-huh. and where, where we fell on the <laughs> spectrum of fandom for this movie. Yes. Um, I don't know why this and is then... immediately started making me laugh, but yeah, we did. Because <laughs> you know what I'm thinking. Yeah. Uh, and then God bless you because you mostly let me like nerd out for an entire hour, which is, I appreciate you. This is why we're friends. Um, so. This is what you'll be doing for... with me next week. <laughs> yes yes here's the thing it's called balance it is called balance it's called balance and i'm i'm so excited for for next week and getting to listen to you which i want everyone I want, will I want have to, to hear me what we're doing yet you have to listen to the end of the episode to find out what we're doing They'll listen to me have my excited noises yeah i'm excited for your excited noises i'm not sure what your excited noises are <laughs> there's there plenty there's plenty <laughs> there's plenty okay awesome i'm pumped for that um so for solo uh, something we didn't really talk a whole lot about last week was casting, mm-hmm. and I definitely wanted to get into that because we did we did touch a little bit on Alden Aaron right because we just you can't get through the movie without talking about what a great job he did right. You had to talk about and the main character. I, you got to talk about the main character and something I didn't say last time was when I was doing my research for this that according to IMDb, uh, the casting search for who was going to play Han Solo was the second biggest casting search in history next to Christian Grey for Fifty Shades. I know! And I'm like, dang! I'm like... I have nothing to say. I have nothing to say about... (laughs) That speaks for itself! Han Solo makes sense. That makes sense. (laughs) The other one? That... Really? That it took that long to find Christian Grey? No, here's the thing. That makes perfect sense to me because you have very high expectations for I this guess, character. Like, I guess, but like, I haven't read the books, so I haven't seen the movies either. I can't. I've, I have tried I... to read Fifty Shades over three times. <laughs> like, I can't get through it. I can't get past like the first two chapters. I'm, I'm sorry. From a writing perspective, I can't get through it. I can't. I you you have know what I'm no reading right desire. now. <laughs> no hate to the film, no hate to the fans, no hate to any of that. But I'm like, that was that's a character I felt like, yes, get the right actor, but like, he seems really that's like what you're gonna go hard on <laughs> copy and paste kind of man, if you know what I mean. Uh, apparently not. Apparently or apparently not. all the ones who were pretty enough to be in that role can't act. That's that, what I think you know is what I'll give you credit. Like the real you have problem. To, if you're trying to balance, you know, appeal, visual appeal with talent, you've got to talent. Right, because I think what you're through. looking for is like brooding Cole's catalog model, 
and they may not have any acting ability. <laughs> so you have, yeah. So to the man, I don't remember who got cast, but whoever you are, <laughs> um, congratulations. What's his name? He was the sheriff. He was the sheriff in Once Upon a Time. I've never watched that. That's the only, and here's the thing, like, and this is not a spoiler because Once Upon a Time has been out for forever, and if you haven't watched it, shame on you, and this happens in, like, the first two episodes, he dies. Like, like, first or second episode, just heart ripped out of his chest. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, congrats to that actor for making it into what, was it three films? Four? Uh, yeah, I think there's four, because there's four books. C- congratulations guys Let's see. You, you did well who plays christian gray jamie dornan mm. oh i've heard of that's him. right jamie dornan also, you he's, i believe while scottish i'm sorry that's fine i'll leave it in this did i type time. while speaking yeah mm. jamie dornan i believe he's scottish what else has he been in i know i've seen that man in other things this is about solo why are like we talking about this lot. man i'm sorry because we're, we're talking about casting we're talking about casting and here hold on let me tell you some of the people that screen tested for yeah, the character of <laughs> because i hold on because there was some of these where i was like what um so the first the biggest and first one was dave franco okay mm, so not, not big franco little franco right um miles teller okay and um um um, um what was the other kid the other kid from the divergent series the other kid the one from Fault in Our Stars. Where is his name? Ansel Elgort. He also oh. screen tested for Han Solo. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Miles Teller would have been charming, Dude, but he doesn't He doesn't these... look like Han Solo. Looking at all the people you have listed here. Uh, the biggest one that I was like, what? Was Chandler Riggs, who played Carl on The Walking Dead. I don't know who that is. Sorry. <laughs> well, okay. Aaron Taylor uh, Johnson. Okay. Let's see who else you have. Um, Rami Malek? Really? I know! Remy Malek screen tested for Han Solo, and I'm like, what? Taron Edgerton? Love him. Absolutely. I could have seen that one. I think out of all of them, that would have been, like, the next person I would have been like, yeah, okay. I Tom think... Felton? Tom Felton screen tested for Han Solo. Interesting. Honestly, Miles Teller, maybe. Taron Edgerton, maybe. But, again, I like that they got someone who wasn't, like, a huge name. I really, I, like... I really love that because it fits the fact that this is a, this is like a character building moment. This is his, the first story of Solo. Right. This should be the first story the actor gets to tell too. Right. And, uh, and the director said, they, so actually Alden Ehrenreich actually went first for his screen test. Oh, wow. And yeah, he went first. And I guess the, uh, the director's word, they kept saying to themselves every time they would, they would screen test somebody else, they would go you know what? I really liked the first kid we saw every single time, and then they wound up sticking with him. I love that. Which is crazy that they actually found him on the first try. That's dope. Mm-hmm. Um, also, casting, other casting things was uh, the interesting choice of the casting for Kira in Amelia Clark. I wanted to see what you thought about that. I, I mean, I haven't watched her in a lot of things. I know she was, what, in Game of Thrones? Yeah, I'm one of those Daenerys Targaryen in Game of Thrones. The one percent of the population hasn't seen that yet. Oh, um, it's so good. I will someday. I just haven't. Um, I usually catch up to pop culture about ten years too late. Um, <laughs> you still haven't watched Parks and Rec yet, which hurts I've watched, my soul. I think I watched the first season of that, but I really no. well. The first season's not good. <laughs> Listen, it's like The Office. You have to skip it. Okay. Well. <laughs> <laughs> 
I really liked her as Kira. I didn't really have anything to base her off of other than maybe a couple things mm-hmm. I'd seen her in here and there. Um, I yeah. know you had more opinions on her, but I really liked her. I thought she was relatively compelling. Again, I know I always already discussed, like, I didn't really care for the romance that much, but it's fine. Yeah. Um, but I really liked her turn at the end of the film, and I felt like mm-hmm. she's a really good job of playing. I felt like she played, like, three different characters. She she played a love interest. She played a kind of deceiving character kind of towards the end. And then in the middle, I was always like, well, what is your motive? I felt like she was playing three mm-hmm. different people. So I was trying to figure out her motive. Who side is she on? You mm-hmm. kind of figure she's out an enigma. She's, she's an enigma. Yes. So I enjoyed not knowing where she stood throughout the film. I think that made her where the her most allegiances compe- were. Yeah, I think that made her the most compelling character for me. Oh, really? Okay. Mm-hmm. I like that. I liked, I think as far as compelling character went, I think I liked uh, Tobias Beckett. He actually, he both of them. But I would say he, I think, was one of two. She, I couldn't decide because I was thinking, like, she's got like three things going on. Him, I was like, either he's playing everybody or he is a good guy. Or mm-hmm. he, he's kind of a gray area, honestly. Yeah. Um, I liked I liked the casting of Amelia Clark because, you know, we're talking about not, not, well, okay, we're talking about bringing care, or, uh, actors' past performances into a current role and how Alden Ehrenreich didn't, didn't really have any to bring into the portrayal of Han. But Amelia Clark did, mm-hmm. you know, she, she's played at this point two really powerhouse female characters. I mean, freaking Daenerys Targaryen, the mother of dragons. And then she also played Sarah Connor. Uh, oh, yeah, she was Sarah is, Connor. Yeah, she was Sarah Connor in in the Terminator reboots. Um, well, technically they're sequels, not reboots. But um, but I, she did a really good job of being Sarah Connor because Sarah Connor is also this big, strong, powerhouse female character that a lot of people can get behind. And and that I feel like that tends to be hit or miss when it comes to strong female roles and strong female characters. You have to be really careful how you write them. Um, and I felt like those the two that she's really been in that were strong female characters, she did really, really well at portraying. And so I think then bringing that, bringing her past acting experience into this role for Kira, I'm like, yeah, okay, I can see her being this this strong female character because that's what she's acted in the past. And she's done really well acting in the past. Um, especially, especially having her being able to, like, do, like, Star Wars version of Krav Maga. <laughs> It's called, she literally knows a martial art form called Taras Kasi. That's dope. And it's like, it's like the, the, uh, not the actress, the character. <laughs> but still. The, the character knows Taras Kasi, which really is like the Star Wars version of Krav Maga. Well, I mean, um, which we is watched she... her physicality on, on, on the film. Like, she can move. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, she absolutely can. And so she did a great job doing the choreography for those stunts and stuff. And so I think seeing, seeing her... And, and and thinking about her past experience as an actress and her pla- her past roles, I'm watching her do like jujitsu at the end and being like, yeah, okay, that's believable. Like Mother of Dragons can do whatever she wants. <laughs> right. We don't question the Mother of Dragons. We don't question the Mother of Dragons. Um, other favorite. I think I mentioned this last time, but other favorite casting was bringing John Favreau into the movie mm-hmm. as Rio, the little Ardenian. Which was so sad because I think you and I both really liked him, and then he Again, dies like right at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> my two favorite characters both died. I was like, "This is trash." <laughs> Wait, your two favorite? What was the other one? L three. Uh, oh L3? yeah. 
I think as, I thought, as far as characters that died, my favorites were L3 and Beckett. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say, as far as casting goes, um, I did not expect Tandy Newton's character to die. I did not have high what was her? I can't remember what her name was, um, but but Beckett's girlfriend. Mm-hmm. I did not expect her character to die. Because I remember you turned to me and you were like, I'll bet Amelia Clark's character is going to die. And I was like, no, she's not. Uh, I that would have thoroughly surprised and happy. The the opposite of that was for me. I didn't think Tandy Newton's character was gonna die at all. It I thought felt that she like was gonna the be movie on the was mission heavy the with time. characters, so people had to go. I yeah, I guess so. There's there's two ways you can do that, and either people go their separate ways and go on different missions, or we kill them. I yes, for sure. Um, that being said, back to Tobias Beckett, Woody Harrelson always playing some version of himself. <laughs> But really, though, like, that's a, like a, he's like a typecast at this point. He's literally playing some version of himself in every film. And honestly, I could watch it be himself. I watch, I would watch a movie just about him being him. Like, I'd watch a meta movie about himself. <laughs> like the Nicolas Cage movie? Right. Or being John Malkovich. Yes. Uh, I've not seen the Nicolas Cage movie. And I need to because it also has Pedro Pascal in it. <laughs> It does. Actually, he was talking about the film on Hot Ones, and it sounded really interesting. Apparently, it's it's supposed it's like a, it's a meta thing. It's it's Nicolas Cage playing Nicolas Cage, right. but in in a not in a not rea- realistic movie. But that's why uh, I feel like we need a film like that with Woody Harrelson. It'd be wonderful. absolutely. I fully agree with this statement. But I need him. If you were if you were to cast or not cast, if you were to write that movie, what what would the scenario be? Because I feel like he would need to be like a Jason Statham level like hitman. <laughs> nah, it'd be something probably closer to like The Hangover. <laughs> I'd still watch that movie. Something about it have to be something akin to The Hangover. Some kind of like get super drunk or get high on something, and then you oh, have no. to figure out like. And then you have to, like, mix National Treasure in there with it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I would watch that. I would watch that. Like, the Declaration of Independence gets lost, and somehow Woody Harrelson has to find like, it. <laughs> I think that would be a very entertaining film, <laughs> in my opinion. Oh, I would love that. Okay. Um, I think that's other than other than Paul Bettany playing our bad guy. Uh, Paul, hold on. We need to appreciate Paul Bettany. We need to appreciate Paul Bettany. How for a can second. you not appreciate Paul Bettany? Like, not only is he a funny and great human being, but like he's just so like his voice does things for me. He's oh, got such he's, a I mean, he's got a great voice. Like, there's voice. a reason he was Jarvis. He's so wonderful. That's the thing too. Is like when Paul Bettany took on the role as Jarvis. I don't believe this is this is me remembering things I've read. I don't have citations. This is just. Hear me out, guys. I don't have but I remember he said, like, he was like, that's an easy paycheck. I'll do that. And then there, oh, he was in an interview. And then they're like, hey, we want you to play, um, oh my gosh. It's Vision. Thank you. Why was there I? There you go. I got you. I was like, it's not Scarlet Witch. That's the other character. <laughs> we want you to play this <laughs> Paul Bettany as the Scarlet Witch. I'd still watch that movie. Yes. And so he's like, dang, now I got to earn this paycheck. So he couldn't just and, do voiceover yet, anymore. It's like I'm so glad he became Vision because like he's so great in that role, and I just love him. In, and mm-hmm. like he's played so many amazing roles over the year. But like mm-hmm. I love seeing him ooh. as a villain because I feel like I haven't watched him as a villain in a long time. So I was like, ooh. So have you seen um, the series on Netflix, uh, the Manhunt Unabomber? No. 
with Sam Worthington. Mm -mm. Yeah, Paul Bettany plays Ted Kaczynski. Does he now? Well, let me add that to the Netflix list. Uh, And I might need to just come down and watch it with you because he is amazing. Well, because, I mean, like, and to definitely diverge into true crime, which I feel like will be the entire month of October for us. Um, Ooh, and spooky films. But, yeah, spooky spooky fest for all of October. Um, Ted Kaczynski's not your traditional crazy guy... um, like you know bomber or or serial killer or whatever whatever you want to call it he's he's not your traditional person he's the dude has an above genius iq oh yeah he was smart guy yeah he's really smart and and if you aren't careful like he can totally brainwash you into understanding things from his side so it was really interesting to have someone with the calmness that paul bettany brings to a character Mm -hmm. um because he did a really good job of of portraying Kaczynski. And so that was the first thing I've ever seen him in where he was a bad guy. Um, and so I felt like I felt a little bit of that in him playing Dryden Voss. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, there's a little bit of crazy serial killer in here. Love, love, love Paul Bettany love. Which song. I guess, and I can't remember where I read this, but I read this somewhere and I don't remember who was supposed to be in in his stead, but I guess Paul Bettany was not the first casting choice for the villain. Um, I guess it was somebody else, and when they switched directors, um, he they actually, and the, the, the person they'd originally cast couldn't make the reshoot, and so they had to recast the character entirely. Dang, I wonder And they brought in Paul Bettany. I don't know. You know what? Let's look it up. Michael K. Williams. I don't know who that is. I can't even picture who that is. Oh! Oh, oh, hold on. I'm going to, I'm just going to send this page to you, Sheriff. Okay. Because I can't, I can't tell you right off the top of my head what he's in, but as soon as you see his face, you're going to go, oh, but he passed away. Well, dang. Okay, I just texted it to you. He's the guy from The Wire. Oh, I know exactly who this is. Right? As soon as I saw his face, I'm like, oh, I've seen him in, like, so many the things. The Wire was such a good show. Yeah. He passed away. I forgot he passed he away. He did. He passed away. There was, like, a whole lawsuit and everything. Oh, my God. Dang. He was such a good actor. I know. So, I guess that was actually who was supposed to play Dryden Voss. And uh, I, that would have done a great so job. cool. Oh, he would have done a great job. That's sad. Oh, I would have watched that movie. I wonder. I'm sure there's footage somewhere that we could go find. Like archive footage of his scenes that were taken out, um, but I mean, Paul Bettany still did an amazing job. He did. Definitely don't want to take um, away from Paul Bettany because he did. No, fantastic. but it, it just would have been a different. It would have been a different character entirely. Um, still would have been excellent. Great seething villainy. Um, speaking of seething villainy, uh, the one. Um, like makeup slash special effects thing that I wanted to bring up about the character of Dryden Voss and I felt like Paul Bettany did really, really well um, was he's got these like scars that go down his face mm-hmm. and I think he's supposed to be some species other than human um, because when he gets angry and he gets tense, those scars like darken. Usually they're like a, like a darker shade of tan when he's calm, but then when he gets angry, his scars like really light up and get like dark crimson. I remember the first time I saw that on screen, I was like, "Am I seeing things, or did those change colors?" 
I know. And, and then it they showed it again. And they showed it again. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, okay. It's definitely a reflection of yeah. where he's feeling emotionally. Yeah, they did a really good job with it, too. And they did it in degrees also. So when Dryden Voss would get, like, a little bit upset and give, like, a, a, a lightly veiled threat to Kira, they would get, like, a little bit darker. Mm-hmm. But then, like, when he would get really mad and be, like, fighting, they were, like, dark crimson. Um, and I think that... Uh, the reason that I think that he has to be some other species in human is that when he dies, if you notice, he gets like ash pale, like immediately. <laughs> just like when and, and not dies. just just like when Vision dies. Literally thought the exact same thing. I was like, oh man, poor man had that happen twice, uh, three times. Oh, okay. So one more one more thing about casting uh, that I wanted to bring up since you did love the character of L three so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she's played by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, um, which is that the British actress, for anybody who hasn't heard of her, is she's the British actress and she's in that Amazon show Fleabag. Very popular show. Um, very popular show. I wasn't a huge fan of it. it I mean, it's well written, but it's just, it's too dark for my taste. It's too depressing for my taste. Um, Wes loved it though. I like it. And how they had her do the acting for this is that L3 is not entirely... Um, CGI. Um, they had her put on like a, a green suit and then they put like droid plating over her like shoulders and arms and chest and stuff. And then they had like a little droid hat on her. And then they just used special effects to then edit out all of the, the green suit and then just replace it with like wiring and stuff. I love that. So she's in all of the scenes that she's in. I love that so much. Um, I'm glad actually it wasn't just acting a out all of them. Yeah, because well, I guess part of the thing was when she went to do her screen test. Apparently, Phoebe Waller-Bridge has never seen a single Star Wars movie, and so had no idea what a droid was. So I guess when she went in to do her screen test for it, she kind of just like read the lines mm-hmm. and acted them, and. Um, and so she read them and then, you know, the producers were like, that's fine, but could you do it a little bit more droid-y? And from (laughs) that comment, she deduced, she's like, oh, so this must be like a robot. (laughs) And then acted it a different way the next time, still having no idea exactly what she was auditioning for. (laughs) Um, and then after she did it like the droid way, they were like, you know what? Actually, we liked it the other way. And so they cast her and had her do, like, her fully human, like, droid rights, droid freedom. I love that. Makes <laughs> Well, I think you even spoke about, um, or maybe you were about to bring it up, that, um, is it C-3PO? Yes. Who eventually, later in the series, is plugged into um, the Millennium Falcon. Yes, he's plugged into the Falcon. Mm-hmm. And he says, like, I don't know where your ship learned to communicate, but it has the most peculiar dialect or something like that. And I, now I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Makes perfect <laughs> sense now. Also, apologies to any You said Millennium Falcon. I said Falcon. I apologize. Please. <gasps> Technically, it is said as both okay. because it is the bird. It is F-A-L-C-O-N. But for some reason, and, and Falcon is, I believe, the, the British way of, of pronouncing it. And, and Americans say Falcon. But for some reason, in the Star Wars universe, it's pronounced Falcon. And I actually don't know why that is. That'll be something I'll have I to look up. I don't want to offend any of the Star Wars fans. Well, 
And different people say it different ways in the Star Wars movie themselves, just like people say both Han and Han Solo. I love it. Which they made reference to in this movie. And I can't remember if we talked about that last week or not. We did. I believe Um, so. Yeah, but but having Donald Glover's character intentionally mispronounce it Han, go, it's it's Han, but but that's okay. (laughs) Um so I'm looking at my notes here. We have, I have uh, some, like a whole page and a half of writing and connections to the Star Wars universe <laughs> that we can now skip through because we talked about that last time. Um, You really did have a lot of notes on that. My goodness. There's so much because I have so much to nerd out about, man. It's okay. This will be I, me next week. I have such a fleshed out universe now of, of being able to understand things, um, which reminds me of something that my my brother had me do because there are we were talking about things that are our canon, things that have been retconned, and and stuff like that. And my uh, my brother reminded me that there are actually some video games that are still canon and considered part of the Star Wars universe, How which is interesting. interesting because then you have, right, you have such a small subset of audience that is going to have played those and have Star Wars not <clears throat> Star Wars knowledge that nobody else does. And so what my brother and I did over the weekend was he actually sat me down and had me watch a, like a cut together of all of the important gameplay moments and cut scenes from uh, Jedi Fallen Order. Nice. Which is the first one. And then yesterday we just watched all of the, or we watched some of the important gameplay and cutscenes for um, Jedi Survivor, which is the sequel. Is that, to that the one, one that just came out? Yeah, the one that just came out. Somebody like on their first playthrough of the game was was brave enough to record all of it and uh, and cut it all together for us. We, we appreciate games. those people. Like, I mean, for real. Give though. us the walkthroughs, please. Give us the walkthrough. Well, and this guy. The first one that we watched, the the cut together of the game, so all the important gameplay moments where you're having important conversations with characters, and then cut scenes that, you know, push the story forward, uh, the the full cut of the movie, quote-unquote, was five hours and 45 minutes long. Of cut scenes? Yes. Of, well, no, of cut scenes and important gameplay. Okay. So, like, important characters that you meet. Like, you know when you, like, you interact Jeez. with a character and it might not be a cutscene, but, like, they're giving you important information while you're playing. So it's those moments. Good grief. Um, yeah. Almost six hours long. We watched the whole thing. Absolutely not. <laughs> I don't yeah. know if we I'd be so dedicated. the whole thing. I just wanted to know. Like, I wanted, I wanted to know if there was any external, like, you know, Star Wars lore that I was missing. I mean, technically, technically there is. Yeah, six a hours of character. It. Actually, apparently in well, the just from one, just from one game. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I mean, you got to think about it. As far as a game goes, like it can take you days to beat a game. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of content in there. Um, and actually, so the the character from from Jedi Fallen Order of Cal Kestis, he's he's the main character in those games. I guess for the Mandalorian, a lot of people were hoping that they were going to find out that the person who saved Grogu during Order 66 was actually Cal cuz he survives. Yeah. Um yeah, so Jedi Fallen Order takes place like 5 years after Order 66, but but it's not it's not Cal Kestis if you haven't if I won't tell you who it is if you haven't watched the third season of Mandalorian yet I'm we do not. get some background on how Grogu I'm got out during Order 66 I know I know it's so good I will it's so good 
it's got a powerhouse uh, director team because it's John Favreau and Dave Filoni who did all of the Clone Wars and all of the Exa and Rebels, all the Star Wars stuff. Um, and Bryce Dallas Howard. And then there's two other directors whose names I can't think of right now, but who are equal Star Wars nerds. So it's fantastic and really well done. Um, ooh, so let's talk about music. 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 Um, uh, so I was surprised when I looked at the composer for this movie to find that the score was composed by John Powell, which, uh, if you're not, if you're not, you know, crazy music people like us and don't know who John Powell is right off the top of your head, um, he did the (laughs) soundtrack for How to Train Your Dragon, the Bourne series, the Jason Bourne series, um, Shrek, and Kung Fu Panda. Literally... All of those are wonderful. <laughs> I know. So, like this guy's this guy's credits for scores really are just like the, a perfect mixture of like serious like action movies and action family movies. Like he just does like feel good action movies. When I tell is you, what this guy does. Kung Fu Panda is a big hit between me and my oldest nephew. Like, <gasps> Skadoosh, we were. I love that movie. It's so good. I love Kung Fu. Kung Fu Panda is one that took me a long time to watch, and then when I finally did, I'm like, "What was I waiting for?" This movie. You're like, is "Why did I wait so long? Fantastic. This movie is so good." And the casting is so good. All the voice actors mm-hmm. are amazing. And I mean, it's Jack Black for one thing, who has all of the vibrancy no of wrong. the perfect voice actor. So he's in The Mandalorian. He, oh, oh, that's right. He is. Isn't he? I and told Lizzo? you about this. Lizzo also, and I, him right? Him and Lizzo are in an episode of The Mandalorian, and I, I'm still unsure about how I feel about it. But Jack Black gets a pass because he's Jack Black, and it's the, the episode lands fine, but I was just like, what are they doing in the Star Wars universe? Are Who they cares? Are they secretly nerds and we didn't know? Probably. Uh, yeah, so, and let me tell you, as far as Kung Fu Panda goes, I cannot make ramen in my house without going, noodles! (laughs) There's just certain things that stick with you. Oh, oh, I should practice my splits while eating food in the kitchen. Yes, in a high place, in the corner. (laughs) In a high place, I will. I'll do that the next time you're over. We'll see if I can do that. Good luck, I'm not Um, catching you. I won't, I might fall. I was gonna say I won't fall, but that's possible. I have my splits though, so let's make ramen and I'll do the splits in the kitchen. Yeah. Um, and I guess for the music for this, they did, they brought back some of the original John Williams scores, obviously, and then just kind of stylized them with John Powell. Um, although he did separately come back and compose the theme for the movie itself, John Williams did. Interesting. Which I don't, I guess he was maybe not retired at this point, because he's retired now. He's retired from film scoring. Hold on, let me look up when John Williams retired. Is anyone ever really retired from the film industry? The answer is no. <laughs> not really. You more like they kind of like take a break, break for 10 years, and, and then someone's like, but can you come back for this? And they're like, fine, because I'm, I'm bored. From, it, literally, that's what it comes down to. He's like, oh, what do I do now? Like, your brain has been creative for so long. How do you just stop being creative? Right. I feel like it's the version of like when you retire and like you you get bored and then you see those sweet old men working at like Joanne Fabrics because they're bored. <laughs> what? Do you not? Okay. 
pay attention to this because it's it's something that happens when like when men well, not men but I mean just when people retire in general they'll be like retired for like ten years or so and then like ask if you ever like strike up a conversation with them I have run into at least ten different people who are working at some random place like. Joanne Fabrics, there's a lady who worked at Family Video back when that was a thing, who were just literally bored in retirement and wanted something to do a couple of days a week so they didn't go crazy. Right, like, you don't, you retire from full-time to part-time, let's be honest. Yeah, like, but literally, though, um, okay, so the, the man hasn't retired yet, apparently. I just looked him up, I thought he had retired, I guess he's tried to retire a couple of times, but this says that John William announced, uh... Oh, no, so this says John Williams announced and then rescinded his intention to retire from film score composing after the release of Indiana Jones and The Dial of Destiny in 2023. I'm sorry, the what now? We're not even going to confront it. Don't. I... Don't. Don't. Oh, no. Don't. We don't need to confront that. Oh, no. I just opened a whole can of worms in Continue. my brain. Continue. We don't need to address it. The what of destiny? <laughs> Skip! Oh, Skip. no! Skip! Skip! <laughs> oh, no! You know what research I'm going to be doing later? Skip! <laughs> oh, no! That... Mm. Oh, I thought the crystal skull was bad. Skip! <laughs> I found your t-shirt, Cher. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> oh my goodness. Okay. Let's talk about some more music stuff. Um So you wanna okay, here's something. You wanna know why we like John Powell so much and we love all the movies that he's done? Why? He was trained by none other than Hans Zimmer. Of course. I know! Doesn't it all make sense now? Because we love Hans Zimmer. I love that when you find a composer and you find someone who sounds similar, like, man, they sound so similar. I wonder why. And you're like, blah, blah, blah. Oh, they were trained Prodigy. By... Yep. Prodigy. Mm -hmm. Literally. Mm-hmm. I was Prodigy listening of. to um, the soundtracks for Attack on Titan the other day because oh, sometimes man. you just need instrumental music. And then I learned Absolutely. that... The I, was li I was listening and saw that there was a different composer for the animes. And I was like... The person, I, if I if I remember correctly reading this, the person who's composing the most recent seasons is a prodigy of the the one before. And I was like, dope. Oh, some that's some beautiful continuity right it there. It really is. Um, okay. Other moments of music in the movie that I absolutely loved. Um, there were a couple of them that I think I pointed out to you while we were watching, but like little little snippets of like our OG Star Wars music. Mm -hmm. So like when Han is is hunkering down in the spaceport on Corellia and he sees the Imperial promo video to to join the Imperial Navy. Um, you know how like well, okay, never mind, I'm not gonna finish the thought that I was gonna start. So <laughs> So it's got like it's you know it's got like thematic music playing behind it and if you listen to it it's actually it's it's the Imperial March like the mm -hmm. the Death Vader Death Vader the Darth Vader March. also Death Vader because yeah also Death Vader uh like the dun 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 mm -hmm. dun, dun it's that Imperial but it's March. a major version of it to make it sound all like you know be proud of your country e right. and join the Imperial Navy. <laughs> And I was like, that's funny. 
of course I, th- I thought that was great and it's not it's not very overt like some other instances where we hear other traditional star wars music it's just like if you are listening for it you'll catch it right um but another part of the of the movie that they did intentionally put in original star wars music was when you see the millennium falcon for the first time mm-hmm. and you uh just like they put in the star wars theme and it's that like heartwarming stylized version of the star wars theme i got chills and i teared up a little bit <laughs> And they pan out, and there's just the beautiful, like, flaring music in the background, and I'm, I was, like, on the verge of tears. That's not saying a whole lot. I could cry at, like, a washing machine commercial, but, like, still. (laughs) (laughs) Um, favorite music moments from the movie for you? Mm, I'm gonna have to agree with the the first time you see the Falcon. I I was also Mm. like, this is perfect. But yeah. honestly, I would say not it, not a lot stood out to me. I think that which I think was fine because this wasn't you know, this wasn't part of the Star Wars line per se. It's it's a story in it, mm-hmm. but you know, I I think it was mostly just um, again the same part for you where I really actually noticed it for the first time. And when he like sits down for the first time to like add it to like start like flying, I think those mm-hmm. two moments were really what stood out to me as far as music goes. You know, I think that's true because, like, thinking about this, you're not trying to, like, outdo John Williams with your score. Well, and consider this, this too. Think about um, the Newt's Commander movies, you know, uh, Fantastic Mm -hmm. Beasts. You only hear a couple of the chord progressions from the main Harry Potter music, which is is great. It puts you, like, into the mood of the film. It's like, oh, you're back in the magic Mm -hmm. universe. But I do like the score... On alone for those films because you know it's it still has that same feeling of the magic you got that from the Harry Potter world, but it. it's now mm-hmm. in Newt's world, and that's mm-hmm. a whole other can of worms. Those films, I do like them for the most part. There are things I do and don't, but like as as far as music goes, I do like that we are we reincorporate some of the old with the new because it's that's one way to tie it in. Music is always a good way to tie in old with new. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, I mean, like, I thought having John Powell do this, you definitely got, like, a great heroic soundtrack, but nothing, like, Mm earth-shattering. You know, like I said, you're not trying to compete with John Williams here, because you can't. Right, you're trying to expand upon something here. You're trying, like, it's it's no different than, like... it's just there to add to the feel of it. And you can think the same for Powell, you know, in the same way we had, um... Oh, what's our main actor's name? Alden Ehrenreich. Alden, you know, his his first role in Solo. He's taking up such a big part of Harrison Ford's character. Now we have mm-hmm. the same with our composer who's stepping into the shoes of John Williams. And now he's getting his right. chance to prove, you know, he can also be a maestro to this big part of this larger story. Mm, yeah, true. That's true. Yeah, because really, like, when I thought about John Powell's, like, film score references, that's not he's not composed anything like this except for like the born series and obviously that's not supernatural or sci-fi right um although there's there was one music part that that i know you had kind of pointed out i although i don't know if you specifically said anything about the music itself but i know that you liked the scene and that's when and we can talk about this so spoiler alert we can talk about this because we talked about this last episode so if you're listening to this we already dropped a huge spoiler last time and all that to say get out Get out now if you haven't listened to episode <laughs> one or watch the movie. Get out. Um, skip. Skip. 
<laughs> uh, but at the end of the movie, when we find out that Maul is behind Crimson Sun and or Crimson Crimson Dawn, Crimson Dawn? the other one's Black Sun, Crimson Dawn. Thank you. Um, we find out that Maul is behind Crimson Dawn. And he's having his conversation with Kira, who we find out is, like, a triple agent and actually working for Maul individually. Like, I, that's why I love her character. Right, like, double same. agent. No, triple agent. I loved her so much as the, as, the, as the movie went on. I was like, oh, oh, oh. You know? Right? She keeps evolving. Right? Because I thought, well, okay, hold on. Let me not get sidetracked here. But there was, then he, he bring, Maul brings out his lightsaber and then we get that beautiful production moment of seeing his lightsaber reflected uh, in her irises. That was my favorite shot in the whole film. Oh, it was so good. The lighting was so good because they darkened the room. And then, I know, and then the lightsaber in her eyes. I was like, oh, oh, that was amazing. Stunning. And then if you listen closely, you hear a little bit of Duel of the Fates Mm -hmm. in the background. Which, that's probably, Duel of the Fates is probably my favorite song in the entire Star Wars universe. That and Across the Stars, Mm -hmm. the the love theme between Anakin Anakin and Padme. I love that song. It's so pretty. Um, but yeah, Duel of Fates is probably my favorite. Really? Mm-hmm. It's. I mean, it's great. It's great for I sure. I think it's because um, I just really liked Darth Vader as a kid. I, I don't know what that says about me as a person. <laughs> what is wrong with you? I literally <laughs> you okay? had a pen when I was a child that was Darth Vader. And if I used the pen, it would start playing that song. That's amazing. That's amazing. As a teacher, I would have used that to grade papers. Oh, my God. That would be heartbreaking. <laughs> oh, I had the best sense of humor. Uh, <laughs> I miss teaching. So, yeah. Duel of the Fades during that. I think that was another moment of great, great musicality and bringing back a little bit of the OG Star Wars universe. Um yeah, Duel of the Fates is my favorite song because I think I think I feel like I've talked about this before. Or I know I've told you about it for sure that Duel of the Fates, um, obviously another John Williams song, was written for the Phantom Menace, and he wanted it to be Duel of the Fates is the song that we get during uh, Maul and Qui Gon and Obi Wan's fight, mm-hmm. like the dun, 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 that one, mm-hmm. um, because the he wanted john williams wanted the sound to be choral you know like the 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 quivering like epic battle choir music Mm -hmm. but he wanted it to still sound spacey like they were singing in a different language rather than actually have them singing in a different language the man wrote the lyrics for the song in sanskrit because why not because why not? Because apparently Sanskrit sounds like it could be a different language in, like, the Star Wars universe, which absolutely, after listening to the song. Uh, and I guess I guess Duel of the Fates is actually a translation of a poem about a... What is the poem about? I believe it is about, like, someone who is experiencing, like, an internal battle. Okay. Like, like, there's, like, a war within, within themselves. Makes sense, because the title... Right. So, yeah, so that's that's what the poem is about. He translated the poem into Sanskrit and set it to music because why go halfway? <laughs> um, 
Okay, let's talk about some of the production choices for the last thing we're going to talk about today. So what was this, uh, were there any things, because like you're you're my production brain here. There's like some things that I, I notice, obviously, but like what were the biggest things that you noticed about the production side of things? My favorite thing as far as production went, again, and we kind of talked about like the chase scenes and stuff like that. I love those. But if we're talking about oh, yeah. like, um, think, like I absolutely loved a lot of the sets. I think Star Wars has always done a really, really good job of making their sets really unique and adding in all all mm-hmm. kinds of props and stuff to like make your eyes catch and be like, what's that? What's oh, that? Yeah. But I think that's a re- like, I really love that for two reasons, especially when it comes to costume, because it gives people more chances to be able to cosplay. And that's a big yeah. thing for, that's a big thing for, you know, fans to cosplay as their favorite characters. Like, I think my brother wanted oh, yeah. to cosplay as um, Mace Windu. And it, it makes like, absolutely. And it's like you know, I love you know, costuming goes so many ways, and having all these characters and all these people play different things and wear different things, it makes it makes it easier for people to be able to cosplay their favorite things they see in these films. But I honestly, mm-hmm. I think my favorite thing was a lot of the the props that we see throughout. Yeah, it literally gives all these artists and all these set designers and prop designers and all these people who work on like the things that are we don't notice on screen or don't they typically go mm-hmm. unnoticed like we're, we're we're watching for the actors and you know these cool chase scenes and all these explosions but like are you paying attention to all these cool sets and all these cool props like people think about these things for hours and weeks and months right. and years to put this little object in the corner of the scene for you to enjoy just to make the scene come alive and honestly that was yes. my favorite part of production was looking and watching and like enjoying all the visual things of this film and, so, and mm-hmm. especially in like scenes where there wasn't action i think it's the first time they get on the ship it's tobias and um han mm-hmm. where they get on um on dryden Voss's ship. yes the visual feast of just watching everything in this in this in this uh his ship i just loved yeah. it that was my favorite scene was what visually yeah. to watch was just them walking around his ship Kira. Well, yeah, because I mean, his ship is one of opulence, and not only you know? that. Like, let's talk about the ship itself. That thing is vertical. Oh yeah, there are plenty of ships like that it's in the so Star Wars universe. Neat. Like, excuse me while I go get my my encyclopedia. I have a Star Wars encyclopedia of of various ships and vehicles. But that's the, it, like <laughs> for some reason, seeing it stand as a tower and move across screen, mm-hmm. it reminded me of again this. I don't know how many people have watched *House Moving Castle*. It's another one of my favorite animated films that I could talk about for hours and hours. Um, I've only heard of it and like seen snippets of it. I've never actually watched some, it. For some reason, it made me think of *House Moving Castle*. He has this like rickety, mashed together bits and pieces of things to make this quote unquote castle. It is a dump, but it, <laughs> it is a dump. Once he like like eventually towards the end of that film in *House Moving Castle*, it can fly and it just it's this thing that just moves through the sky and it's so neat. And for some reason, huh. if they look, they don't look anything the same. But that's what it made me think of when I saw Dryden's ship just go across the screen. I was like, it's House Moon Castle in the sky, but nicer. But nicer. Um, and a little more menacing. Yeah, I, I had seen um, another reference on IMDb where um, originally the movie was supposed to have, like, once they got into Dryden's ship, they were supposed to even be, like, a pool on his ship somewhere. He doesn't and so seem like a pool type about, of guy. <laughs> doesn't seem like a pool type of guy. But there was supposed because like it's supposed to be like a yacht right. essentially like a space yacht it's and neat. Um, I get on that space yacht, 
right i would like a space yacht um there and there was supposed to be a, a pool scene eventually they end up cutting it but just talking about how much manpower and how much thought goes into all of these props and scenes and set dressing and everything and there was an entire team of people devoted just to designing what star wars bathing suits look like yeah you have to though because because you have to. Again, because you can't just slap them in some OP bikini from Walmart. You can't. Here's the thing. I This is another space <laughs> film. Hear me out. Xenon. Like, think of like. No. No, hear me out. Xenon. Hear, hear me out. Think they had to think about, okay, people in space and Earth. They might have some like similar aspects. They're both having like some quirky stuff. But like, you have to sure. have all these teams of people to be like, okay, we need it to look like it's in this universe. But mm-hmm. it like it, but it has to still be unique. So you yeah. have to obviously take from what you know, real life, and you're like, okay, let's make this Star Wars. Let's make it Star Wars. As, I mean, it's real what you life, have to but do make the whole time is like we have to think, not in terms, not in so many terms of like Earth like, because it can't be like from right. here. You have to put some kind of little spin on it, which right. is right. It has to be warped a little it bit. It has to be, and like to be spacey. It, I don't. Re- I don't think people realize just how big and how massive these teams are to make just oh so big things that like. I mean, that's the small what I'm saying. Things, There's the a whole team. See. Right there was this whole a whole team for bathing suits, and mm-hmm. the whole scene got cut. That's just for one shot, essentially. One shot. Like. So you have teams of people dedicated to deciding, like, okay, well, there's going to be a bowl of fruit here. What should the fruit be? Well, right. it can't What's just be it bananas look and grapes like? because that's too easy. So what color do they need to be? Oh, what well, after that, fruit. we have to make it, by the way. Mm-hmm. Like, I know of one fruit in, in the Star Wars universe. It's called a Melu run, and it kind of looks like a dragon fruit. Right. Um, but other than that... There's all sorts of different fruits that obviously have to be in this universe, and then you have to make it. Mm-hmm. So you need to, you know, go to the set design people and have them make these fake space fruits. It just, I just so much intention, and I completely agree. the The shots on Dryden's ship would definitely be the most visually appealing and a test a testament to the set design people. Okay. Another, one other production thing that I noticed because it looked so familiar was, do you remember in the Millennium Falcon, there's, there's like that chess game that they play that Chewie is playing it with Tobias Beckett and there's like those little hollow characters. Uh, yes. Do you remember this at Mm -hmm. all? So it's something that they retain through most of the movies is this little hollow chess game. It's called Dejaric. And, um, and so I looked up, I was like, how did they make it look like the exact same as the originals and it's because they actually use the exact same animation style for it because the game in the original trilogy is done with stop motion animation wow. yeah that then they were that they recorded and then you know through special effects projected onto this chessboard well then they did the exact same thing for the scenes with the chess scene uh in these movies or in solo also I like that. And I was like, oh, what a fun little, like, fun fact. So, ooh, okay. There was one other production one that I think I went to tell you about it. And then you were like, no, ma'am, save it for the podcast. Um, How many times did I say this while we watched this movie? So many times. Like, at least 12. At least. Um, it's, it's It's my nature to just want to, like, talk about the cool things that I'm seeing and discuss while watching. I can't help it. It makes sense. Um, so... On Vandor, which is that the snow planet where they're trying to pull off that like train heist, 
at the beginning of the movie. So they, you know, they screw up and they lose the coaxium and it drops into the side of this mountain where both they and Enfys Nest abandon the the hall. And so they drop the coaxium into the side of this mountain and the mountain like implodes and the, oh, the was explosion dope. was just visually beautiful mm-hmm. because they didn't just go with like your traditional like boom explosion you know throwing some cgi fire and smoke and that's it um it like it like expanded and then imploded in on itself like a dying star and i it was so beautiful and i was like that's so interesting okay so guess what they studied for Trying to get the animation for that. Dying stars. No, I have no idea. No, actually. at Shot at 120,000 pr- frames per second, they studied underwater explosions. That makes sense. How interesting is that, right? And, like, now I'm, like, overlaying thoughts of, like, underwater explosions onto that explosion. I'm like, that's totally what that looks like. But then it looked extra visually appealing and, like, a total brain bender because it was an underwater explosion happening above water in atmosphere. And I was like, that's, that's so amazing. Cool. That's, that's so, cool. so cool. Don't know how they came up with the idea for that, but kudos to them because that's awesome. And we should totally use that when we may eventually make a movie. <laughs> yes. The one thing I will say, the last thing I want to say about production is just the overall uh, visual look of the movie. Because I feel like when it comes to space movies, it's so easy to want to make things like glittery and high def and you want to just go super futuristic and spacey looking with all of your aesthetics and shots and stuff but that was something that i appreciated they didn't really do with this movie was that the movie was kind of dark kind of grungy um a lot of things were obscured with like mist and cloud and fog and smoke and and it was not super like sparkling like you would think a a modern made space movie would be right because you also, I think you have to think about when this is taking place in the Star Wars timeline. So this is actually happening bef- before a lot of what we have seen. And so I think it kind of makes sense that they wouldn't go all out with the visuals for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I, I looked up and according to IMDb, the director of photography, Bradford Young, worked directly with Panavision to find old lenses that suited the gritty look of the picture that he was going for. We love. Um yeah, and then I guess he actually, like, you know, refined them to use on the film. So he actually removed a lot of the anti-glare mm-hmm. coatings and then slightly detuned the lenses so to achieve, cool. like, that that imperfect look that he was going for. And I really thought it landed really well because that was one of the things I noticed was that was that it wasn't, like, super sharp and crisp. It was actually a little bit – it, like, almost aged the film I a like little that bit, a lot. You know? Um, I do, too. My cinematography teacher, Bear Brown – I feel like he'd be fine with me name dropping him. He, oh yeah, he, we'll have him on as a guest star. I, or as I hope a guest so. star eventually. Um, he brought in a bunch of different like filters and lenses into class for us to look at, and it's like you don't realize just how much goes into just making some of these like little lenses to pop into mm-hmm. these these cameras. Mm-hmm. And like it blew my mind. Things I didn't know until I took this class, and yeah, so like it's right. Hearing you say that, it's it is so important because. There are some directors who they like edit their they film with specific lighting and you edit to the stuff they there there's things called LUTs and I'm not gonna go into very deep about this but okay. it's basically like a look no I for find this film. fascinating it's like the blue tint in, in your favorite movie Twilight 
you know, you, you make these LUTs and then you light your film based on the LUT you've made for your film to look like. So, okay. it, it like, there's... Like a preset, basically. Basically a preset, yes. Wonderful way to describe it. And so, okay. hearing how much they, the, the DP, um, or did you say the cinematographer? No, it was, it was the DP, director of photography. The DP went into you know, trying to find the look he wanted for each scene and all the things he did to, like, change lenses and all these things. Like, oh, right? so cool. The the things that you don't even see, like, so underappreciated mm-hmm. because no one will ever know that unless they do research on this mm-hmm. movie. <laughs> or listen to us. Listen Yay, to us. everyone can appreciate Bradford Young now. Okay, so that concludes our discussion on Solo, A Star Wars Story. Today we tried to talk more about the production side of things and what made this movie surprisingly good, uh, despite getting panned. So for next week, with the sequel coming out June 2nd, we will be doing a two-part special on Sony's graphic masterpiece, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Yes, and you will... All of you will get to listen to Cherie just have an absolute freak out fest for, the for people, those episodes. And I'm for the people who know me, very they know excited how much I to let film. Oh yes. Anyone who knows Cherie knows that this is her her film of the century, and I'm so excited to pick her brain about why she loves this movie so 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 much. Get ready for my nerd out next week, nerds. Get ready. You thought I was bad. Get ready. <laughs> Outro. 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 Oh, no. Okay, no. So I have to say this. One <laughs> one last thing before we wrap, because I didn't get to say it last week because I forgot. Uh, little nerd thing. I have Han Solo's dice. You do? That he hangs in his ship. I have them. They hang in my car around my rearview mirror. Remember the first time I so, saw that, I was like, what is that? If you ever see me driving around town, I have the hanging dice that he has. They are cool. Okay. Outro. Outro. Cinematic Pulse is edited and produced by Cherie Jackson. The episodes and theme are written and performed by yours truly. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook, and you can find Cinematic Pulse on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Thank you so much for listening, because we just checked your Cinematic Pulse. Roll credits. Roll credits.